Welcome to tape number one of Gleanings in the Godhead, part two, Excellencies which pertain to God the Son as Christ by A.W. Pink. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a pre-printed catalog if you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to our reading of Part 2 of Gleanings in the Godhead by A.W. Pink, which we pray you find to be a great blessing and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 26, The Fullness of Christ. It is fitting that we should contemplate the excellencies of Christ, the Mediator, for the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is to be seen in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. The fullest revelation that God is and what He is is made in the person of Christ. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared, John 1, 18. But this knowledge of God is not a mere matter of intellectual apprehension, which one man can communicate to another, but it is a spiritual discernment imparted by the Holy Spirit. God must be shine in our hearts to give us that knowledge. When the materialistic Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, the Lord Jesus replied, He hath seen me, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father, John fourteen nine. Yes, he was the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, Hebrews 1.3. In the eternal, incarnate word dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, Colossians 2.9. Amazing and glorious fact it is in the perfection of manhood that the fullness of the Godhead is in Christ revealed to our faith. We could not ascend to God, so he descended to us. All that men can even ever know of God is presented to them in the person of his incarnate Son. Hence, that I may know him, Philippians 3.10, is the constant longing of the most mature Christian. It is our design to declare some part of that glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is revealed in Scripture and proposed as the object of our faith, love, delight, admiration, and adoration. But after our utmost endeavors and most diligent inquiries, we have to say how little a portion, Job 26.14, of him we understand. His glory is incomprehensible, his praises unutterable. Some things a divinely illuminated mind can conceive of, but what we express in comparison to what the glory is in itself is less than nothing. 
Nevertheless, that view which the Spirit grants from the Scriptures concerning Christ and His glory is to be preferred above all other knowledge or understanding. So it was declared by him who was favored to know him, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Philippians 3.8 John Owen has well said, quote, The revelation made of Christ in the blessed gospel is far more excellent, more glorious, more filled with rays of divine wisdom and goodness than the whole creation and the just comprehension of it, if attainable, can contain or apprehend. Without the knowledge hereof, the mind of man, however priding itself in other inventions and discoveries, is wrapped up in darkness and confusion. This, therefore, deserves the severest of our thoughts, the best of our meditations, and our most diligent in them, our most utmost diligence in them. For if our future blessedness shall consist in living where he is and beholding of his glory, what better preparation can there be for it than in a constant previous contemplation of that glory in the revelation that is made in the gospel unto this very end, that by a view of it we may be gradually transformed into the same glory. End quote. The grandest of all privileges which believers are capable of either in this world or the next is to behold the glory, the personal and official excellencies of Christ, now by faith, then by sight. Equally certain, no man will ever behold the glory of Christ by sight in heaven who does not now behold it by faith. Where the soul has not been previously purified by grace and faith, it is incapable of glory and the open vision. Those who pretend to be greatly enamored by or to ardently desire that which they never saw or experienced only dote on their imaginations. The pretended desires of many, especially on deathbeds, to behold the glory of Christ in heaven, but who had no vision of it by faith while they were in this world, are nothing but self-deceiving delusions. There is no true rest for the mind nor satisfaction for the heart until we rest in Christ, Matthew 11:28-30. God has proposed to us the mystery of godliness, that is, the person of his incarnate Son and his mediatorial work as the supreme object of our faith and meditation. In this mystery, we are called upon to behold the highest exhibition of the divine wisdom, goodness, and condescension. The the Son of God assumed manhood by union with himself, thereby constituting the same person in two natures, yet infinitely distinct as those of God and man. Thereby the infinite became finite, the eternal temporal, and the immortal mortal, yet continued still infinite, eternal, and immortal. It cannot be expected that those who are drowned in the love of the world will have any true apprehension of Christ or any real desire for it. But for those who have tasted that the Lord is gracious, 1 Peter 2.3, how foolish we would be if we gave all our time and strength to other things to the neglect of diligent searching of Scripture to obtain a fuller knowledge of Him. Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward, but the same Scriptures reveal a divinely appointed relief from all the evils to which fallen man is heir, so that we may not faint under them, but gain the victory over them. Listen to the testimony of one who passed through 
a far deeper sea of trial than the great majority of men. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed, for which cause we faint not. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Second Corinthians four eight, Second Corinthians four sixteen to eighteen. It is beholding by faith things which are not seen by the eye, which the spiritually poverty-stricken occupants of palaces and millionaire mansions know nothing of, the things that are spiritual and eternal, which alleviates the Christian's ap- afflictions. Of these unseen, eternal things, the supernatural glories of Christ are the principle. He who can contemplate him who is the Lord of glory will, when all around gives way, be lifted up out of himself and delivered from the prevailing power of evil. Not until the mind arrives at a fixed judgment that all things here are transitory and reach only to outward man that everything under the sun is but vanity and vexation of spirit, and there are other things incalculably better to comfort and satisfy the heart, not till then will we be ever delivered from spending our lives in fear, distress, and sorrow. Christ alone can satisfy the heart, and when he does truly satisfy, the language of the soul is, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides thee. Psalm 73:25. How slight and shadowly, how petty and puerile are those things from which the trials of men arise. They all grow from the one root of the overvaluation of temporal things. Money cannot purchase joy of soul. Health does not ensure happiness. A beautiful home will not satisfy the heart. Earthly friends, no matter how loyal and loving, cannot speak peace to a sin-burdened conscience, conscience, nor impart eternal life. Envy, covetousness, discontent receive their death wounds when Christ, in all his loveliness, is revealed as the chiefest among ten thousand. Song of, Song, Song of Solomon 5, verse 10. Chapter 27. The Radiance of Christ. The law had a shadow of good things to come, Hebrews 10.1. A beautiful illustration of this is in the closing verses of Exodus 34, when Moses descends from the mount with a radiant face. The key to the passage is found in noting the exact position it occupies in this book of redemption. It comes after the legal covenant which Jehovah made with Israel. It comes before the actual setting up of the tabernacle and the Shekinah glory filling it. This passage is interpreted in 2 Corinthians 3. Exodus 34 supplies both a comparison and a contrast with the new dispensation of the Spirit, of grace, of life more abundant. But before that dispensation was inaugurated, God saw fit for man to be tested under law to demonstrate what he is as a fallen and sinful creature. Man's trial under the Mosaic economy demonstrated two things. First, that he is ungodly. Second, that he is without strength. 
But these are negative things. Romans 8.7 mentions a third feature of man's terrible state, namely that he is enmity against God. This was manifest when God's Son tabernacled for 33 years on this earth. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. John 1 verse 11. Not only so, but also he was despised and rejected of men. Nay, more, they hated him without a cause. John 15.25 Nor could their hatred be appeased until they had condemned him to a malefactor's death and nailed him to the cross. Remember, it was not only the Jews who put to death the Lord of glory, but also the Gentiles. Therefore the Lord said, when looking forward to his death, Now is the judgment of this world. John 12:31 Not of Israel only there the probation or testing of man ended man is not now under probation he is under condemnation as it is written there is none righteous no not one there is none that understandeth there is none that seeketh after god they are all gone out of the way they are together become unprofitable there is none that doeth good. No, not one. Romans 3, verses 10 to 12. Man is not on trial. He is a culprit under sentence. No pleading will avail. No excuses will be accepted. The present issue between God and the sinner is, will man bow to God's righteous verdict? This is where the gospel meets us. It comes to us as to those who are already lost, to those who are ungodly, without strength, enmity against God. It announces to us the amazing grace of God, the only hope for poor sinners. But grace will not be welcome until the sinner bows to the sentence of God against him. That is why both repentance and faith are demanded from the sinner. These two must not be separated. Paul preached repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 20, 21. Repentance is the sinner's acknowledgement of that sentence of condemnation under which he lives. Faith is acceptance of the grace and mercy extended to him through Christ. Repentance is not turning over a new leaf and vowing to mend our ways. Rather, it is a setting to my seal that God is true when he tells me I am without strength, that in myself my case is hopeless, that I am no more able to do better next time than I am to create a world. Not until this is really believed, not as the result of experience, but on the authority of God's word, shall we really turn to Christ and welcome him, not as a helper, but as a savior. As it was dispensationally, so it is experimentally. There must be a ministration of death, 2 Corinthians 3, 7, before there is a ministration of spirit of life, or, or life, 2 Corinthians 3, 8. There must be the ministration of condemnation before the ministration of righteousness, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 9. A ministration of condemnation and death falls strangely on our ears, does it not? A ministration of grace we can understand, but a ministration of condemnation is not so easy to grasp. But this latter was man's first need. He must be shown what he is in himself, a hopeless wreck, utterly incapable of meeting the righteous requirements of a holy God, before he is ready to be 
a debtor to mercy alone. We repeat, as it was dispensationally, so it is experimentally. It was to his own experience that the Apostle Paul referred when he said, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Romans 7, 9. In his unregenerate days he was, in his own estimation, alive, yet it was without the law, apart from meeting its demands. But when the commandment came, when the Holy Spirit wrought within him, when the word of God came in power to his heart, then sin revived. He was made aware of his awful condition, and then he died to his self-righteous complacency. He saw that in himself his case was hopeless. Yes, the appearing of the glorified mediator comes not before, but after the legal covenant. And he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights, and he did neither eat bread nor drink water, and he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, Exodus 34:28. Our passage abounds in comparisons and contrasts. The forty days here at once recalls the forty days in Matthew 4. Here it was Moses, there it was Christ. Here it was Moses on the mount, there it was Christ in the wilderness. Here it was Moses favored with a glorious revelation from God. There it was Christ being tempted of the devil. Here it was Moses receiving the law at the mouth of Jehovah. There it was Christ being assailed by the devil to repudiate that law. We scarcely know which is the greater wonder of the two, that a sinful man was raised to such a height of honor as to spend a season in the presence of the great Jehovah, or that the Lord of glory should stoop so low as to be for six weeks with the foul fiend. And it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount, that Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. Exodus 34.29 Blessed it is to compare and contrast the second descent of Moses from the mount which with what is before us in chapter 32. There the face of Moses is diffused with anger, verse 19. Here it comes down with a countenance radiant. There he beheld a people engaged in idolatry. Here he returns to a people abashed. There we behold him dashing the tables of stone to the ground, verse 19. Here he deposits them in the ark, Deuteronomy 10.5. This event also reminds us of a New Testament episode very similar yet dissimilar. It was on the mount that the face of Moses was made radiant, and it was on the mount that our Lord was transfigured. But the glory of Moses was only a reflected one, whereas that of Christ was inherent. The shining of Moses' face was the consequence of his being brought into the immediate presence of the glory of Jehovah, The transfiguration of Christ was the outshining of his own personal glory. The radiance of Moses was confined to his face, but of Christ we read, his raiment was white as the light, Matthew 17.2. Moses knew not that the skin of his face shone. Christ did, evident from his words, tell the vision to no man, Matthew 17.9. Verse 29 brings out what is the certain consequence of intimate communion with the Lord in a twofold way. First, no soul can enjoy real fellowship with God without being affected by it to a marked degree. 
Moses had been absorbed in the communications received and in contemplating his glory. His own person caught and retained some of the beings of that glory. So it is still, Psalm 34, 5, they looked upon him and their faces were radiant. It is communion with the Lord that conforms us to his image. We shall now not be more Christ-like until we walk more frequently and more closely with him. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 3.18 The second consequence of real communion with God is that we will be less occupied with ourselves. Though Moses' face shone with a light not seen on land or sea, he did not know it. This illustrates a vital difference between self-righteous fairyism and true godliness. The former produces complacency and pride. The latter leads to self-abnegation and humility. The Pharisee there and many of his tribes still on earth boast of his attainments, advertises his imaginary spirituality, and thanks God he is not as other men. But the one who, by grace, enjoys much fellowship with the Lord, lean, learns of him who was meek and lowly in heart, and says, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory. Psalm 115, verse 1. Engaged with the beauty of the Lord, he is delivered from self-occupation and is therefore unconscious of the very fruit of the Spirit being brought forth in him. But though he is not aware of his increasing conformity to Christ, others are. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh him. Exodus 34.30 This shows us the third effect of communion with God. Though the individual himself is unconscious of the glory manifested through him, others recognize it. Thus it was when two of Christ's apostles stood before the Jewish Sanhedrin. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Acts 4.13 We cannot keep company very long with the Holy One without his imprint being left upon us. The man who is thoroughly devoted to the Lord does not need to wear some badge in his coat lapel, nor to proclaim that he is living a life of victory. It is still true that actions speak louder than words. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh him. The typical meaning of this is given in 2 Corinthians 3.7. But if the ministration of death, written and engraved in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance. Concerning this, Ed Dennett has said, quote, Why then were they afraid to come near him? Because the very glory that shone upon his face searched their hearts and consciences. Being what they were, sinners and unable of themselves to meet even the smallest requirement of the covenant which had now been inaugurated. It was of necessity a ministration of condemnation and death, for it required a righteousness from them which they could not render, and as much as they must fail in the rendering it, would pronounce their condemnation and bring them under the penalty of transgression, which was death. 
The glory which they thus beheld upon the face of Moses was the expression to them of the holiness of God. That holiness which sought from them conformity to its own standards and which would vindicate the breaches of that covenant which had now been established. They were therefore afraid because they knew in their inmost souls that they could not stand before him from whose presence Moses had come. Typically, the covenant Jehovah made with Moses and Israel at Sinai and the tables of stone on which the Ten Commandments were engraved foreshadowed a new covenant. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. Ezekiel 36 24 to 38. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write in their hearts, and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Spiritually, this is made good for Christians even now. Under the gracious operations of the Spirit of God, our hearts have been made plastic and receptive. Paul refers to this at the beginning of 2 Corinthians 3. This is a quote from C.A. Coates. This quote, The saints of Corinth had been manifested to be Christ's epistles administered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on stone, stone tables, but on fleshy tables of the heart, their hearts being made impressionable by divine working, Christ could write upon them using Paul as a pen and making every mark in the power of the Spirit of God. But what is written is the knowledge of God as revealed through the mediator in the grace of the new covenant, so that it might be true in the hearts of the saints. They shall all know me. Then Paul goes on to speak of himself as made competent by God to be a new covenant ministry not of the letter, but of the Spirit, end quote. Again, quoting Mr. Coates. And Moses called unto them, and the Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him. And Moses talked with them, and afterward all the children of Israel came nigh, and he gave them commandment, all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And till Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. Exodus 34, 31-33. Does not this explain their fear as they beheld the shine of Moses' face? Note what was in his hands. He carried the two tables of stone on which were written the ten words of the law, the ministration of condemnation. The nearer the light of the glory came, while it was connected with the righteous claims of God upon them, the more cause they had to fear. That holy law condemned them, for man in the flesh could not meet its claims. 
However blessed it was typically, it was literally a ministry of death, for Moses was not a quickening spirit, nor could he give his spirit to the people, nor could the glory of his face bring them into conformity with himself as the mediator. Hence, the veil had to be on his face." End quote. The dispensational interpretation of this is given in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 13. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. Here the apostle treats of Judaism as an economy. Owing to the spiritual blindness, Israel was unable to discern the deep significance of the ministry of Moses or the purpose of God behind it, that to which all the types and shadows pointed, the end of Second Corinthians 3.13 is parallel with Romans 10.4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Quoting Mr. Coates again, Quote, The veil on Israel's heart is self-sufficiency, which makes them still refuse to submit to God's righteousness. But when Israel's heart turns to the Lord, the veil will be taken away. What a wonderful chapter Exodus 34 will, uh, will be to them then, for they will see that Christ is the spirit of it all. What they will see, we are privileged to see now. All this had an end on which we can, through infinite grace, fix our eyes. The end was the glory of the Lord as the mediator of the new covenant. He has come out of death and gone up on high, and the glory of all that God is in grace is shining on his face. But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. And he came out and spake unto the children of Israel that which he had commanded. And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, and the skin of Moses' face shone, and Moses put the veil upon his face again until he went in to speak with them, verses 34 to 35. Moses unveiled in the presence of the Lord is a beautiful type of the believer of this dispensation. The Christian beholds the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Therefore, instead of being stricken with fear, he approaches with boldness. God's law cannot condemn him, for it is ever, it, but for its every demand has been fully met and satisfied by his substitute. Hence, instead of trembling before the, God of, the glory of God, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Romans 5.2 Quoting Mr. Coates again, quote, There is no veil now either on his face or our hearts. He makes those who believe on him to live in the Spirit of God, and in response to God, for he is the quickening spirit, and he gives his spirit to those who believe. We have the spirit of the glorious man in whose face the glory of God shines. Is it not wonderful? One has to ask, do we really believe it? But we all, looking on the glory of the Lord with unveiled face, are transformed according to the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Lord the Spirit. Second Corinthians 3.18 if we had not his spirit, we should have no liberty to look on the glory of the Lord or to see him as the spirit of those marvelous types. But we have liberty to look on it all, and there is transforming power in it. Saints under the new covenant ministry are transfigured. This is the surpassing glory which could not be seen or known until it shone in the face of him of whom Moses in Exodus 33 is so distinctly a type. 
The whole typical system was temporary, but its spirit abides, for Christ was the spirit of it all. Now we have to do with the ministry of the new covenant subsist and abounds in glory. End quote. The author of Paul's apostleship has been had been called into question by those certain Judaizers. In the first verses of 2 Corinthians 3, he appeals to the Christians there as a proof of his God-commissioned ministry. He defines the character of his ministry, verse 6, to show its superiority over that of his enemies. He and his fellow gospelers were ministers of the New Testament or Covenant. He then draws a series of contrasts between the two covenants, Judaism and Christianity. What pertained to the old is called the letter, and that relating to the new, the spirit. One was mainly concerned with what was external, the other was largely internal. The one slew, the other gave life. One of the leading differences between the law and the gospel. In what follows, the apostle, which allowing the law was glorious, shows that the gospel is still more glorious. The old covenant was administration of death, for the law could only condemn. Therefore, though a glory was connected with it, yet it was such that man in the flesh could not behold. Verse 7. Then how much more excellent would be, must be, the glory of the new covenant, seeing it was administration of the Spirit. Verse 8. Compare verse 3 for proof of this. If there were a glory connected with what concluded all under sin, Galatians 3.22, much more glorious that ministration must be which announced a righteousness unto all and upon all them that believe, Romans 3.22. It is more glorious to pardon than to contemn, to give life than to destroy, verse 9. The glory of the former covenant therefore pales into nothingness before the latter. Verse 10, further seen from the fact Judaism is done away, whereas Christianity remaineth. Verse 11, compare Hebrews 8, 7, and 8. The apostle draws still another contrast, verse 12, between the two economies, namely the plainness or perspicuity, excuse me, perspicuity, over against the obscurity and ambiguity of their respective ministries, verses 12 to 15. The apostle used great plainness of speech while the teaching of the ceremonial law was by shadows and symbols. Moreover, the minds of the Israelites were blinded so that there was a veil over their eyes. Therefore, when the writings of Moses were read, they were incapable of looking beyond the type to the antitype. This veil remains upon them to this day and will continue until they turn to the Lord, verses 15 and 16. Literally, the covenant of Sinai was a ministration of condemnation and death, and the glory of it had to be veiled. But it had an end, verse 13, which Israel could not see. They will see that end in the coming day. But in the meantime, we are permitted to read the old covenant without a veil and to see that Christ is the spirit of it all. The language of verse 17 is somewhat obscure. Now the Lord is that Spirit, which does not mean that Christ is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit here is the same as in verse 6, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Compare Romans 7, 6. The Mosaic system is called the letter because it was purely objective and possessed no inward principle or power. But the Gospel deals with the heart and supplies the spiritual power, Romans 1, 16. Moreover, Christ is the spirit, the life, the heart, and center of all the ritual and ceremonialism of Jerusalem. He is the key to the Old Testament, for in the volume of the book it is written of him. 
so also Christ is the spirit and life of Christianity. He is a quickening spirit, 1 Corinthians 15.45. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Apart from Christ, the sinner, be he Jew or Gentile, is in bondage. He is a slave to sin, a, a slave to sin and the captive of the devil. But where the Son makes free, he frees indeed, John 8.32. Finally, the Apostle contrasts the two glories, the glory connected with the Old Covenant, the shining of Moses' face at the giving of the law, with the glory of the New Covenant in the person of Christ. But we all, with open or unveiled face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Note here, first, we all. Moses alone beheld the glory of the Lord in the mount. Every Christian now beholds it. Second, with open face, with freedom, and with confidence, whereas Israel was afraid to gaze on the radiant and majestical face of Moses. Third, we are changed into the same image. The law had no power to convert or purify, but the ministry of the gospel, under the operation of the Spirit, has a transforming power. Those who are saved by it and who are occupied with Christ, as set forth in the word, the mirror, are, little by little, conformed to his image. Ultimately, when we see him as he is, 1 John 3, 2, we shall be like him, full, perfectly, eternally. This ends the reading of uh, tape number two, 1. Please go on to the ta next tape in the series. Thank you. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-4730, by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship, 
in which they absurdly exercise themselves, would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.